Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hello, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Marcy. And today we're interviewing Jason Chin, the illustrator of the 2022 Newberry Honor Watercrest by Andrea Wang, and also the 2022 Caldecott Medal winner. Hello, Jason. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for uh, inviting me. And congratulations on the Caldecott. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We just love this book. We love all your books. I'm very curious about your experience with how you got started drawing nature. Oh, how did I get started drawing nature specifically? You know, I've been drawing like forever, as long as I can remember. It was always something I did, you know, from when I was very young. I think I started really observing nature in middle or high school when, oh, you know what it was? I read, I started learning about the Renaissance artists and how they would study anatomy and observe, like, you know, Michelangelo and Da Vinci and, and all like Da Vinci sketchbooks where he had all the diagrams of uh, different parts of the anatomy. And I was, I guess, inspired or that gave me the idea to, to start really observing things more closely. So anatomy was one, but also nature, just what was around my house. I grew up in the country in New Hampshire. So trees, you know, observing trees. Well, I was reading that you started out working at Books of Wonder, which for me is just like <gasps> big heart eyes, you know, oh. because that is like one of the better bookstores I've ever been to in my life. <laughs> so how did that experience sort of inform your career? I started working at Books of Wonder right out of college. So I came to it at that time. I had studied illustration and I had a very, I think, art school, you know, early 20 something, late teenager kind of idea of what illustration should be. And so working at Books of Wonder and being around uh, that community really of, you know, artists and authors, but mostly the staff there, I learned so much more about children's books, you know, why they're important about the history of children's books. And it gave me a a whole new and much better perspective on illustrating for children. It is a little wild how that works. I I had a similar experience. I've worked at Little Shop of Stories, which is in Decatur here near Atlanta for about a decade. (laughs) And it's, it's crazy how you're right. Like you do get these amazing authors and illustrators coming through, but the staff, you know, the staff really influences everything and it it does, it changes your life. Yeah, this, and and I was really, really lucky to be there at the time that I was because we had, I worked with amazing artists. I think many of the people working there, maybe almost all of them were aspiring authors or illustrators and went on to do, have gone on, have gone on to do great things. So Nick Brule was a manager of Bad Kitty fame. We um, love Nick Brule. <laughs> yeah, Aaron Stead was working there. Aaron and Phil. Well, Phil wasn't working there, but um, Aaron was working there. Julie Foliano was there. And George O'Connor. Do you know George O'Connor? The Olympians. Oh, yeah. Book. And George is actually the reason that I ended up working with Neil Porter. He, I had made a, a book dummy. He brought it uh, to show it to Neil. 
Um, and that's how um, my book Redwoods was published. Redwoods is beautiful. I think, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little tired. I know that Grand Canyon is like the sort of the most celebrated one because it is so visually stunning, but I'm a little tied for my favorite between Redwoods and Coral Reef. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the whole book inside the book. <laughs> yeah. <journey. laughs> yeah. And that was, I had made, so I made this book dummy and it's pretty much the same as the book as published, but the, the book in the book that the kid is reading was not the same one as you were reading. That was Neil Porter's idea. So he gave that to me and, and I think it was a, a really good idea. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think it made made the book what it is. I'm curious, do you still actually try to find live or like tangible examples of what you're drawing when you're drawing trees and flora and fauna or do you mostly use like picture references from yeah, books or reference. yeah i as much as i can want to draw from life it's not always possible my last book was about well my last author illustrated book was about the universe and so <laughs> You didn't go out into space for that? I did not travel <laughs> outside in the way to look back at it. Uh, so a lot of that book, almost all of it was photo reference. But as much as I can, I want to draw from life. And especially if I'm doing a book about a place, I want to be in that place and experience the what it feels like to be there. I think that's really, really important. What's your favorite place that you traveled to to research? Oh, the Galapagos Islands. <laughs> that was, oh, was going to be wow. my guess. <laughs> That's an easy one. <laughs> yeah, it has everything. We went snorkeling and saw amazing fish and swam with sharks and octopus and all, all sorts of uh, sea life. And then it has volcanoes and geology and then the animals aren't afraid of people. So you can walk right up to them and see animals that you don't see anywhere else, like the tortoises. There. Get to spend time with them? Yes. So when you go to the Galapagos, I think most people, when they go to the Galapagos, they take a cruise. You stay on a boat, and then it takes you to a different island every day. And so different islands have different ecosystems. And uh, on one of the islands, though, there's the Charles Darwin Research Station, which is where all the scientists that work there do their, their research. And they have a, a tortoise breeding center and rehab center where they are trying to breed tortoises in captivity to help the populations rebound. So we went there and saw all the different aged tortoises, little baby tortoises and older ones. We also saw them in the wild. So uh, on on two different islands, and they have different. There's a different subspecies on each island, with different shaped shells. So, on one island they have more rounded shells, on other islands they have ones that are more like a saddle shape. So that was really cool. When you go on these research trips, do you tend to take reference photos, or do you also and or do you do sketches in the moment? I do both. I want to draw as much as I can, but drawing takes more time. So there isn't always enough time to sit and draw as much as I'd like to. 
so I take a lot of photographs. And the trip to the Galapagos was wonderful, though, because there was a lot of time. It was a long trip. We had you know, all day on one island with maybe two different activities, but there was a lot of downtime. So I was able to sit on the beach and draw iguanas or paint volcanoes from the deck of the ship or whatever. Uh, so that was, I think, another reason why it was one of my favorite trips is because there was that time to sit and absorb and observe this place. I would imagine that even when you're stuck taking pictures and you don't have time to sit and draw, probably just having been in the environment like is helpful just to have the feel of the place. Yeah, absolutely. That uh, it, I think of it as when you're in the place and you get a sense of the space and the light and the atmosphere and so on, uh, you start to develop a relationship with it, like an emotional connection, at least I do. And taking photographs is really helpful for capturing details so that you can go back and carefully observe them later. But one of the things that I always try and do while I'm there is, is pay attention and remember what it feels like, what my emotional connection to it is. Because I think that's an important thing to try and convey in the illustrations of the book. A place like the Grand Canyon and, you know, the beautiful book you made about the Grand Canyon, what was that research trip like? Because that can actually be life-threatening, spending right. time <laughs> in the Grand Canyon for any uh, amount of time. Uh, yeah, I guess it, it can. We, we did it a very safe <laughs> way. Yeah, I didn't think I, you I were like, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, mean, I just, I know trip. there are signs everywhere that are like, you know, yeah. basically it's peril, you know. Well, it, it is scary. There's it's not there's not railings or anything. I saw somebody fall in. Marcy. Yes. No. I, when I was 12 or 13, we went on a family trip there. We went on a family trip to the Grand Canyon and there was a family and the little boy would not stop running around. And he literally fell in and his dad threw himself over and caught the kid by the back of his belt. Oh, my goodness. But but yeah, you, you have to be careful. <laughs> Oh my God, Marcy. That is terrible. <laughs> Thank goodness he caught him. I wow. know. I think I spent the whole rest of the trip clinging to mm -hmm. like the inside wall with one hand and my brother's shirt with the other hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I was pretty nervous going down. So what we did was spend some time on, on the rim, but then did a three-day backpacking trip where we hiked down, camped at the bottom, and then hiked back up on the third day. And I was pretty nervous before the hike in because I'd seen all those pictures of the steep cliffs and stuff. But we were on a, a one of the main trails. It's it's pretty wide. It's I got comfortable walking on it pretty quickly. I think um, as long as you're paying attention and <laughs> you have enough water, you can be fine uh, on those trails. But while we were on this the second day on the the day where we were down at the bottom, we did some day hikes and ended up on a, on a very narrow trail that was um, very steep and or had a steep drop off to one side and a cliff to the other side. And so I was clinging to the cliff like you described <laughs> and looking at my feet and just feeling along the cliff, just making sure I'm, like, I'm not going to trip. 
and I grabbed a cactus. <gasps> oh, no. <laughs> it was like uh, this little cactus. It was about the size of like a water bottle. So it was would have been the perfect handhold. <laughs> but I ended up with all these thorns in my hand. So I had to sit, stand there and pick them out before continuing on. Oh, my word. Oh, no. But but we made it. It was a fantastic trip. And back to the, the drawing thing, I actually didn't get to do nearly as much drawing there as I thought I would or hoped I would because it's such a big place that it, you know, I wanted to go and see these different locations, but it took a long time to walk there. So these were you know, long hikes. So there actually wasn't a whole lot of time to stop and draw because we spent so much time getting from one place to the other. So I took a lot of pictures. But being there was so important to, to uh, get a sense of the scale of the place. I'm also curious about whether it was your choice or it was, you know, part of the book design for the little cutouts in Grand Canyon. That was my idea. The It came when I wrote this one line in it where I said I wrote that the fossils are windows to the past. And when I wrote that, I thought, oh, maybe, you know, it can be an actual little window. <laughs> so that idea came together. I think my wife had, I know my wife had suggested something about die cuts as well a month earlier or a few weeks earlier or something. So it was on my mind probably because of that as well. But it was after I wrote that line that it came together. When I had that idea, I made a book dummy with the die cuts in it. And I knew I wanted the book to end with a look back at the canyon. So I wanted the hike to be from the bottom to the top and the hike that the protagonist takes. And at the end, I thought, oh, I'm gonna, I want a double gatefold. I want to open it up. So the reader gets that sense of surprise and, and awe at looking out at this landscape. So I made this book dummy that had six or seven die cuts. I think it was 64 pages long or with a double gatefold. So it was this mess of <laughs> book dummy that I showed it to Neil. We were having lunch, so I handed it to him and I'm watching him page through it across the table. And his shoulders start slumping and he starts sinking lower in his seat and he ends up with his head in his hands and he says, how many die cuts? <laughs> and is that a, really a double gatefold? <laughs> of course, I'm a, I think in his brain he was adding up the cost of production as he turned each page. He said, how many pages? <laughs> I said, look, Neil, I, I don't know what to do. I need you to help me edit this back. But I know this is too much. I put in every idea I had. And I like all the ideas. I need you to help me choose and prioritize but then a few days later, he called up. He said, okay, we're going to do it all. Awesome. So <laughs> I got lucky. <laughs> I love, like, when I had the discovery, because I think that's what happens, right? Like, you're paging through and you're reading, and then you're like, oh, there's these little cuts. And then you read the fossil line, and it, it all comes together. But for me, it also reminds me of, because I just, I love to hike. I love being outside. And it reminds me of 
one of the major things I love about being outside, which is there's all these little surprises and they're gentle surprises, right? Like you can think there's a rock that's up above, but it's actually like part of a tree. And I know that's not exciting to other people necessarily, but I'm like, oh, a burl, you know? Sure, um, yeah. And I find that I just, I love that your Grand Canyon book had that sense to it. And it just reminded me really of being outdoors and what I love about it. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we do a lot of hiking and nature walks and getting outdoors with our kids. And when they are in the right mood, it's magical when they discover things. And it can be small things or big ones. Uh, I think... What it takes is maybe just slowing down and taking the time to look, being open to it. But we've seen a lot of really cool things. (laughs) I think they're cool. (laughs) Yeah. Given your, your focus on nature and kind of environments in most of your books, what was it that appealed about working on Watercress? When I first read Watercress, the text really blew me away, the depth of its emotional layers, I guess, the complexity of the emotions that the protagonist goes through in the book, and how Andrea was able to get all of those feelings in there in such a spare and lyrical text. I I think it's less than 500 words, and yet it captures all of these universal feelings. And difficult feelings, difficult emotions that that are not often portrayed in picture books. You know, the line that hit me was uh, the line, ashamed of being ashamed of my family. And man, <laughs> it was so, so perfect. That line was so perfect to me. So that's what struck me about the story I first read. And... Neil asked me to illustrate it, and uh, that was my first thought, and then I was hesitant. I was like immediately like, <laughs> slow down. You've got to be sure you want to take this on. It's such an enormous, I think, responsibility to illustrate Andrea's memories, family history, and her lived experience. And I think I always knew I was going to do it, but I wanted to just pause for a second and make sure I was ready to commit commit to it fully. So when I agreed to do it, then I started the process of getting into the heads of the characters. And I think, you know, what I was talking about, trying to understand my relationship to a place like the Grand Canyon, my personal connection to it, I think it's in a way the same thing. It was just instead of it being a relationship to a place, it was uh, being able to identify with each of the different characters in the story. So, yeah, that that was the gist of it. Anyways. There are several moments in Watercress where your art and her words come together and their work in perfect synchronicity but they also show different sides of the story. And the biggest example is the loss of the family member. And she 
she talked a bit about the fact that you guys didn't work together on that. And I was curious about your interpretation of that moment and, uh, and how you decided to portray it. When I made the first book dummy for the book, I had a pretty good idea of how I wanted the pacing for each scene to go. I think I had a good idea of how I wanted to open the book. And the last scene with the family table dining, I had an idea of that. Um, when I came to the scene where the, where the, the uncle dies, I drew a really horrifying scene, famine scene because I had spent a lot of time researching the Great Famine in China and looking at photo reference and reading oral histories and watching videos where people talked about their experience in the famine. And it was a really terrible time. It was really horrible and traumatic. And I was in that headspace. I was in the space of trying to understand and come to terms with the trauma that people suffered. And so the art that I made for that page was really hard. And I knew uh, or depicted that horror. And I knew when I gave it to them, to Neil and Jennifer, the art director, that this was not the image that was going to be in the book. But I had to just get it out and put something in there. And I, I kind of gave it to them and I said, I think that image is probably a placeholder. <laughs> I'm still thinking that. And... We went through the book dummy. They pretty much liked everything else. But then when it came to that page, Jennifer said, well, what if you did a scene with the family all together on one side and, and on the facing page, a similar scene, but the little brother is missing. And when she said it, I just thought, okay, that's it. That's the perfect way to do that. No, no need to to really explore any farther except to figure out what the family's doing. And, um, it was really a gift that she she gave me there. And what was a, an added benefit of that was that it freed me up to dive into the emotions of the family members, to dive into the research of that particular room that they're in and figure out all of the details of the scene and spend a lot of time being able to make it, I think, authentic. I hope it's authentic. Uh, I think it is. And true and and honest, rather than trying to figure out how I'm just going to solve the problem of showing the narrative. So, yeah, so that's, that's what I did. I did a whole lot of research to figure out what kind of chair they'd be sitting in. That spread is so heartbreaking. I I am not a big crier, but that one gets me every time. The the juxtaposition yeah. of that that empty bowl in the first part of the illustration and then the little yeah. boy being gone, it oh gets me. I'm I'm yeah, was, if you had yeah, was, if you had drawings that were more horrifying, I'm so glad that they weren't there because I couldn't, well, <laughs> couldn't you know, handle the, the drawing that I had there was I had done a kind of a montage of famine scenes. Mm-hmm. ending with family at a grave. So, you know, it, it didn't work. 
it, it was impersonal and it was also featured people bodies in the streets so yeah it was it was a different kind of uh, horrifying and, and yeah that scene that scene got me yeah well i think it's also hard because as parents you're just like things hit you differently and the emotion yeah. in that will get you yeah and it's it's interesting when i think when kids read it they aren't hit as hard as as parents like yeah I know I have a niece that understands what happened, but she just moves on. She's, <laughs> I think that's a wonderful thing about books that kids can can choose when they are ready to, to, to think about a difficult scene. If they aren't ready, they can turn the page and move on to the next part of the book. Not only on that spread, but throughout the whole book, of course. Like Your attention to detail is really amazing. I think... You, you hit like the instant nostalgia button when I saw that Pyrex dish. <laughs> <laughs> I showed that drawing to Andrea and she was like, oh my gosh, we had that one. I said, us too. And my I think everyone had it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it's such a nice touch, you know, it, it really puts you in the scene. When I made the artwork for this book, I looked at a lot of Chinese landscape paintings and one of the, and also Chinese bamboo paintings, but one of the features of the landscape paintings is they have a lot of clouds and misty mountains. And and there are, there are some paintings that are very spare, but have one simple focal point, you know, one little person on a mountainside or something like that. And then all this kind of abstract soft clouds around it. So I think that influenced some of, book. Well, I know that the soft clouds influenced the artwork in the book because I, it made me think of memory and how memory has this fuzzy quality to it. So I put soft washes throughout the book. But I think I also thought about very carefully about which details to include. So the Pyrex folds. <laughs> in, in some scenes, you know, the paintings get more abstract, more abstract than I usually paint. So to, to emphasize one or two details. I am a librarian and I do a lot of research and this is, I'm just, I'm here for researching bowls and chairs. And <laughs> it's, it's very, very heartwarming. So, so. They're finding the placemats was, was a challenge. I was like, I want to find placemats that are appropriate to the time period. And <laughs> ended up with these placemats that were kind of, Brown and brown and orange. That was like, all right. That's <laughs> brown and yellow and orange. Yeah, that's that's kind of the that was Olive the uh, yeah oh yeah those were the, like the the colors right. <laughs> A lot um, of it, you know, it came from my memory of that we lived in the Midwest around in the early eighties. So you know, this book was late seventies, but. I think you know a lot of the decor was was similar. We had our, our olive green fridge, and I remember sitting in the back seat, driving around, looking out at corn stalks. I wanted and to capture that feeling of being in the back seat, staring out the window, and not really being able to see much. Just you know, the tops. You know, from the angle you're at, you can only see the tops of the corn stalks or the tops of the trees. Little bit of sky. <laughs> you can't see much, and so you just. Your your world is the inside of the car or 
looking up at the sky. What are your favorite mediums to work in? I always, I have done all my books in watercolor and gouache. And I enjoy watercolor and I enjoy gouache most of the time. <laughs> but for this book, I tried to work in pastel. I tried to do the book in pastel and I really enjoyed it. And I made some practice paintings that I thought were really nice. Unfortunately, I ran into some technical difficulties and some other challenges with using pastel to depict certain details, actually. But I said, unfortunately, maybe it's fortunate because because of those challenges and because I had this nagging feeling that I needed to use a brush for this book, um, I returned to watercolor. The reason that I thought this book needed to be done with a brush is because the brush is so important to Chinese culture. It's the most important tool for the Chinese artist. They actually have the saying, well, I guess it's the saying, that there are four treasures of the Chinese artist. It's the, the ink stick, the ink stone where you grind up the ink, the paper, and the brush. And they're ranked, and the brush is at the top of the the ranking balance, the number one tool. Anyhow, it's really important to Chinese culture. Chinese art is done with a brush and watercolor and ink. And so when I returned to doing watercolor, not only did it feel much more comfortable because I'm more practiced at it, it felt just right for, the, for this book. It felt like all of these challenges I was having went away and I was able to make the art book ease and confidence and things just came started coming together. Did you change the technique or the paper that you normally use? Because it seems, I feel like watercress looks so much more textured than say Grand Canyon. Yes. I used a lighter weight and a rougher texture. Hmm. So normally I use uh, heavy and, and very smooth paper. It's called hot press. In this case, I used cold press and a lighter weight. The reason the lighter weight was important was because it prevented me from going back and reworking things. When you use a heavy weight paper, you can keep dumping water on it and putting more ink or more color, more paint on it. You can work into it and the paper holds up. With the lighter weight paper, have less opportunity to do that. And I wanted the artwork for this book to be more spontaneous. We normally talk to Newberry authors, and I know this book won a Newberry honor, but mm -hmm. we're not normally talking to the Caldecott winner. <laughs> now, usually <laughs> we ask people what it's like to get the Newberry call, but can we ask you what it was like to get that call for the Caldecott to find out that you won? Sure. My editor called me on Friday the Friday of ALA midwinter. He said, Jason, I'm presenting to some librarians at ALA. We're doing a virtual presentation. It's at 5.30 on Saturday night. Can you do it? And I said, I have nothing else going on. Sure. <laughs> it's a weird time. You said, bring some artwork from the next book and you can hold it up to the screen and show them. I said, sure, okay. And so then I 
logged on and it turns out that they did not want to hear from me. It was the Caldecott. They told me that I won the Caldecott watercress. And it was total surprise. And I was just so grateful and speechless and all of us. They have it. They have it recorded because it was a Zoom call. <laughs> <laughs> you can see my uh, reaction and the dumb things I said. But all I can <laughs> think of to say is thank you over and over again. One of the nice things about that call was that each committee member got to go around and do a little roundtable and say say why they like watercress, why they chose it, yeah. what it meant to them personally. That was really, really special. I'm sitting where the, I was sitting when they called me. And so I'm sitting at my painting desk. And the desk uh, used to belong to Trina Sharp-Hyman, the illustrator. And she was my mentor in my small town in New Hampshire. And she, after she died her daughter cleaned out her studio and gave me her desk so you know when i was sitting there and they were telling me about the caldecott i just kept looking at this desk and just remembering Trina, how important she was to me in my life and, you know so that was going and she was such a beautiful artist as well i mean yeah she was pretty pretty special one uh, there, well there's a lot to say on that on that front oh all of the things, all of the gratitude and all of the things she did for me. But in terms of her art, she was an unparalleled uh, draftsperson. You know, she could draw like, like she was an incredible drawer, an incredible visual memory. You know, a lot of the, the characters in her books were based on people she knew. And so you know, her daughters in a lot of the books, yeah, maybe all of her and she had, she never used models. She never had any pose for it. She just would look at their face and just remember what they look like and, and draw it. But she also had an incredible emotional memory and uh, ability to, to connect with people and, and understand them. And, you know, in a way, she, I think, became the characters in her book, in, in her imagination as she was painting it, she would really put them herself in their shoes. And that was a lesson I took with me, you know, kind of adopted from knowing her. And it really came to the fore in watercress in, in a way that it hadn't in other books. You know, I tried to apply it, like I said, to the, the landscapes or the animals in the other books um, and to the people too. But in this book, I really tried to put myself in the shoes of each of the characters and understand them where they're coming from, why they felt the way, felt the way they did. Yeah, that came from Trina. As long as we're on the subject of, of your influences, we do usually like to ask people what their favorite Newbery books are, if they have any. So I assume as a, a bookseller, you know, you came across a lot of them. What are some of your favorites? Yeah, Dead End in Norvell. I love that book. I love it so much. And I love the audio book too, because Jack Gantos reads it. He's amazing reader and it's just an amazing book i love it for me it had this quality of making me laugh and 
cry at the same time. Or, <laughs> you know, I felt like oh, there's so many amazing uh, kind of observations and life lessons in this book, and it's hilarious. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm just, uh, yeah, laughing the whole way through. You have a new picture book coming out very soon. Yes, I have a book called uh, The Universe in You. It's a companion to my book, Your Place in the Universe. In that book, we zoom out to see the largest things we know of, the, uh, the entire observable, observable universe. But in this book, we go the opposite way, and I take the reader zooming in to uh, the smallest things we know of, and, like cells and molecules and atoms, even smaller and the reader will learn about the building blocks of their bodies and the universe of everything we know of. And you didn't get to enter space into anybody to do that, right? Research. <laughs> no, Magic <I> school bus. <laughs> I, I did get to go uh, see the electron microscope lab at UVM, which was really cool. Oh, wow. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and, I, and I was, my, my neighbor happens to be a technician at that lab. So she gave me a tour and then she she loaned me an old microscope of hers. So I spent a lot of time working things under slides and trying to learn how to prepare slides, which I'm still not very good at at all. When does that come out? In the fall. We are so grateful that you had time to talk to us today. It was really delightful. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today on the Newberry Tart Podcast. Again, we were speaking with Jason Chin, illustrator extraordinaire. Please find us on social media. We're on all the usuals. And please rate and review us on whatever platform you listen. It helps other people find the podcast and helps keep us going. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.